2: down the
0: Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart podcast episode 144 <laughs> it's the end of the year and i am out and about doing holiday things so i thought that for the final show of 2018 i would replay the most popular show of the last 12 months which was by far the fourth installment in the Backfire Effect series. So that will play in just a second. And before it does, I'd like to load you up with some information. Uh, First, I'd like to say thank you to everyone who has emailed and tweeted to me and everyone who I've met at the lectures that I've done this year and all the other stuff that's happened over the last few months. And a special thanks to all the people who are helping keep the show going by contributing on Patreon this is a one-person operation, and your patronage is really, really helpful. So, if you'd like to pitch in, you can head to Patreon.com/slash. You are not so smart. Pitching in at any level gets you the show ad-free, but at the higher amounts, you get posters and T-shirts and signed books and all sorts of other cool stuff. And uh, so, yeah, you are not so smart has grown into something all its own, something I could never have foreseen when it started six years ago. Yes, six years. And I'm excited to announce that it's only going to get better. In fact, in 2019, You Are Not So Smart will be going on the road. That's right. Live shows on a stage in front of an audience where I can see your eyeballs. The first few will be in New York, and I'll share details about that in the next few episodes. And also coming in 2019, a series about fake news, a series about IQ, And genius shows about everything from the psychology behind how people greet each other, the influence of hormones on reasoning and decision-making, the science of cringe, habit formation, fandom, and all sorts of other weird stuff. Also, 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 in 2019, I'll be working on a new podcast that will come out in seasons, which will be a spinoff of You Are Not So Smart called Things We Know We Don't, which will be about known unknowns in science. It will cover topics that we know very little about, even though we've been studying them for decades. Things like humor and laughter, anesthesia, sleep, why we have body hair, stuff like that. And finally, in 2019, if everything goes as planned, I will release my third book, How Minds Change, which is all about how human beings change their minds, why they resist that change and how to get past that resistance. Also, it's the science behind how local mind change can cascade and spread across institutions, societies, and, uh, you know, the entire world. More on that in coming months as well. With that in mind, this episode is a sort of expanded excerpt of that upcoming book. And like I said earlier, it was far and away the most popular episode of the year. So yeah, thank you so much for being out there and listening to this. Spread the word! And here it is. Last year on this show, we did three episodes about the backfire effect. And by far, those episodes were the most popular we've ever done. In fact, the famous webcomic, The Oatmeal, turned them into a sort of special feature. And that comic of those episodes was shared on Facebook a gazillion times, which led to stories about the comic in popular media, and then more people listened to the shows, and on and on it went. You can see that comic at TheOatmeal.com right now at the top of their page. It's titled, You Are Not Going to Believe What I'm About to Tell You. Now, the popularity of the backfire effect extends beyond all of this. It goes right into academia. The original paper has been cited hundreds of times across several disciplines, and there have been more than 300 articles written about it in the mainstream media. The backfire effect has this special allure to it because on the surface— it just seems to explain something we've all experienced. When we argue with someone who believes differently than ourselves, who sees the world through a different ideological lens, they often resist our views. They refuse to accept our way of seeing things. And it often seems like we do more harm than good because they walk away more entrenched in their beliefs than before the argument began. But... Since those shows last year, researchers have produced a series of new studies into the backfire effect, and those studies complicate things. Yes, we are observing something here, and yes, we are calling it the backfire effect, but everything is not exactly as it seems. And so, I thought we should invite these new researchers on the show and add a fourth episode to the backfire effect series based on what they found. And this is that episode. So to catch you up or refresh your memory, the backfire effect, as it has been most often defined, is when a person who holds an incorrect belief becomes even more sure of that belief after being corrected. They not only refuse to accept the facts and admit that they were wrong, but they become more wrong. The very attempt to change their mind with facts causes that person to feel even more confident they were correct in the first place, so much so that in a pool of wrongness, the corrected individuals will hold stronger convictions than people who've been left alone. In the first episode of our series, we spoke with some neuroscientists to explain that when you put people into a brain scanner and challenge their beliefs about trivia, things like the Great Wall of China or who invented the light bulb, they tend to update their beliefs no problem once they learn the facts. But if you challenge people about wedge issues like gun control or climate change, they resist so much so. They enter fight or flight mode.
1: The response in the brain that we see is very similar to what would happen if, say, you were walking through the forest and came across a bear.
0: That's neuroscientist Sarah. Gilbert.
1: You know, your, your brain would have this automatic fight or flight where your adrenaline goes up and, you know, you either run or you fight and your body prepares to protect itself. And in that case, it's in terms of your physical well-being and your physical body. But what we're seeing in the brain is the same kind of response. So interestingly, the brain is not differentiating between physical harm and needing to have this fight or flight and more, quote-unquote, like emotional or mental harm of, you know, something that's attacking this other part of yourself that isn't physical. But in terms of the brain, for us, it seems like it's it's looking at it in the same way.
0: In the second episode, we spent time with the original backfire effect researchers, Brendan Nyan and Jason Reifler, who took us through what they found both in the original research and in the research since – In particular, we focused on their research into anti-vaxxers, people who refused to vaccinate their children based on a host of misinformation. Nyhan and Reifler studied what happened when those people were shown the truth about vaccines from reputable sources.
3: The good news was that the corrective information actually was successful at reducing belief in the myth that vaccines cause autism. We found that parents were less likely to say that Vaccines cause autism after they got that corrective information. But when we looked at the bottom line from a public health perspective, which is whether parents would vaccinate a future child, the, so which we call the intent to vaccinate, we find that uh, none of those messages about the dangers of disease that we described increased parents' intention to vaccinate, and in fact, that corrective information... Saying that vaccines don't cause autism actually made parents less likely to say they would vaccinate a future child. That effect, moreover, was concentrated among the parents with the least favorable attitudes towards vaccines, which is precisely the group we would expect to try to resist that information or think of who, who might bring other concerns or questions they have about vaccines to mind in response to it.
0: We also spoke with psychologist Peter Ditto, who took us through both the confirmation and disconfirmation biases. And in the third episode, we discussed how to avoid the backfire effect and how to overcome it by going through the debunking handbook with Stephen Lewandowski and detailing something called the effective tipping point with David Redlosk. Now... Everything in those episodes is still true. We are still motivated reasoners who resist information that threatens our personal and group identities, ourselves. But the notion that facts don't change people's minds, well, that's not true. At least not in the way that we've been framing that phenomenon. The truth is facts do change people's minds, just not in the way we think they should, not in the way we would like them to change. And to understand what I mean, let me ask you a question. What is it that is changing when we say that someone has changed their mind? Or put another way, if you want to change someone's mind, what is it that you aim to change? Now, if the answer isn't immediately obvious, you're in good company, because We have been getting the answer to that question wrong for a very long time. In fact, the people researching, writing about, talking about, and making podcasts and web comics about the backfire effect have been proceeding from the same incorrect assumption about how minds change. And it's the same incorrect assumption the very first scientists to study persuasion made when they finally broke out their calculators and blackboards to make sense of it. And to understand what I mean, we need to go back to the beginning, to the beginning of that research, back to the United States in the days just after the attack on Pearl Harbor. The story of how science began to study how minds change begins on the 11th of February, 1942. Lucille Capra drove her husband to the entrance of Union Station in Los Angeles, gave him a kiss, and told him, Darling, now please, please don't go off trying to direct the army. Promise? He promised. Unlike in his films, there was no music, no dialogue, no wistful looks back and forth. After the drama of the kiss, he stood there, still waving goodbye to a car that had disappeared around the corner. Frank Capra had once climbed out of a limousine at that very spot to clasp hands with the station master. But no one was waiting today. Surrounded by strangers, protagonists, and their own dramas, he lifted his bags, boarded a train, and left Hollywood behind for Washington and the war. ¶¶ Frank Capra was cinematic royalty. He had directed movies like It Happened One Night and Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. But while in the middle of filming Arsenic and Old Lace... In an hour and five minutes, the battleship Arizona was completely destroyed and four others severely damaged. Three other battleships and three cruisers suffered lesser damage. Nearly 200 planes were destroyed. In that Sunday morning inferno, the Pacific fleet appeared to be completely immovable. Like hundreds of thousands of other Americans, Capra dropped everything to pitch in. He said, I'm an uphill man. When my motor races uphill, my interest rises. He was moved and so bored with his success and so excited at the idea of a challenge, he rushed to enlist. And since he had served in World War I, at 44, the Army commissioned him as a major. Capra only requested that they promise to give him six weeks to finish up his new movie and oversee its final edit before he donned a uniform. And they promised. Seven weeks later, he was deep inside the Pentagon meeting with the Army Chief of Staff, General George C. Marshall, who told him that within days of the attack on Pearl Harbor, hundreds of thousands of citizens had enlisted just like Capra. And by the end of the year, he expected more than a million more would do the same. Early estimates said that combined with the draft, more than 12 million Americans would join altogether, most of them teenagers who had never held a gun. Many would not make it back and whole towns would be emptied of their youth. It was unprecedented, and it was clear that the Army needed a new department devoted to turning these civilians into soldiers. Marshall sensed that they were about to face an enormous challenge maintaining morale, first when the men realized what they were up against, and then when a vast wave of homesickness set in. They needed something new, something like propaganda, but not propaganda, because America doesn't make propaganda. This, he explained, was where Capra came in. Internal research showed that none of the current efforts were boosting morale. The army had tried lectures, they had tried training films, and these were boring. They only told soon-to-be soldiers how to fight. They didn't tell them why they fight. You see, there were a number of problems circulating in public opinion at the time, two of which that Marshall wanted Capra to help change was the notion that America was only entering the war to bail out the British, which... Was not true. And the other was that Germany was just this tiny, inconsequential threat, so the war would be over in less than a year. Also not true. Marshall wondered if maybe they could come up with a one-two punch, something that would change public opinion about the war while at the same time boosting morale among the people about to fight it. And he wondered if those messages could be repackaged into something the kids were more into these days, Capra's Specialty. The movies. How? Marshall had no idea. But he told Capra he would sign off on whatever he came up with. Causes and events leading up to our entry into the war. Well, what are the causes? Why are we Americans on the march?
1: Is it because of... Is that why we are fighting, or is it because of
0: Britain? Capra finished a series of inspirational films for the Army in 1942, and together he called them Why We Fight. The first film, Prelude to War, it asked, is it because of Pearl Harbor? Is that why America is fighting? Is it because of a dozen other Axis attacks on other countries? No, the narrator bellowed, that's not why we fight. And an animation created exclusively for the film by Disney showed the history of civilization with quotes about freedom from Moses and Muhammad and Confucius. And the Constitution swept past as the narrator explained that these ideas were like lighthouses in the darkness and the Nazis were working to put out all of those lighthouses of freedom around the world. And then it switched to scenes from Nazi propaganda like Triumph of the Will We see massive rallies, Hitler barking at the crowds, endless rows of goose-stepping soldiers. This, the film proclaimed, is why we fight. For freedom, that for which men have fought since time began, to be free. At every internal screening, when the lights came up, generals and consultants rushed to praise Capra. He had actually pulled it off. And Marshall loved this work so much, he showed it to the president at a private screening. And Roosevelt liked it so much that he sent out a memorandum that it would henceforth replace all lectures for newly inducted soldiers. He wanted Why We Fight to be the first thing new recruits experienced after getting fitted for a uniform and sitting down for a new haircut. Roosevelt even suggested that the Army release Capra's film to the public. And since Marshall wanted to use the film to boost morale, the Army needed people to measure its impact. So, after hiring CAPRA, the military filled the rest of the newly created Information Education Division with a gaggle of social scientists from top universities. And they had all seen Wawi fight, and like everyone else, they too had been moved. But when they heard that the army might put it in theaters around the country for the public, they lifted a collective finger and asked the sort of thing scientists like to ask when everyone else is vigorously shaking hands and lighting cigars. How do you know this works? Now, this was an odd question as far as Capra and Marshall and the U.S. government were concerned. Of course it works. Just look at it. Just watch it. Didn't you hear the president? Didn't you see his face? Didn't you watch this amazing movie? But the sociologists and psychologists that they had hired to measure morale, they just were not convinced. Though both of the sciences were young, something that kept coming up in research was that once you quantify people's reactions, the truth behind common sense often runs counter to people's intuitions. And there was this other thing that both fields had only just started to explore, attitudes, no one yet really knew how attitudes worked or what affected them one way or the other. The attitude an automatic, unbidden, and mostly unconscious positive or negative emotional response to, well, just about anything from chicken pot pie to nuclear explosions, even other attitudes about those things, was such a new idea around this time that entire books by scientists about beliefs, opinions, and public discourse completely omitted the term. And that's a very important point, so keep that in mind. For the Army to get their answers, they'd need to hire a psychologist who studied persuasion. But in 1942, there was no such person. Persuasion had yet to come under any scientist's microscope. As far as science was concerned, we didn't know anything about changing minds, not on purpose. And that meant the Army would need to hire someone who could launch the first research of its kind, just for them. And they settled on Carl Hovland a brilliant young psychologist at Yale who was making a name for himself as the world's foremost experimental psychologist. His output was enormous. He was producing a book a year during his peak, and Hovland gladly accepted their offer. But when he and his team of grad students relocated to facilities prepared by the military, they were immediately faced with answering that strange question whose ambiguity we so often don't notice. When we say someone has changed their mind, What exactly is changing? What seems like common sense here upon closer inspection turns out to be in their time and as yet unexplored territory. And even today, if you ask a dozen different psychologists, and I have, you'll get a dozen different answers. And if you ask 15 neuroscientists, you get 15 more. In the 1940s, The assumption was that people expressed and were motivated by opinions, but that just shifted the problem of definition, because what's an opinion, scientifically speaking? Well, some said opinions are in some way an aspect of beliefs. Okay, so what's a belief, scientifically speaking? Well, some said beliefs are a form of self-talk, or maybe a kind of learning by memorization, or habits formed through experience. The whole thing was a big mess. And most of the early social scientists used all these terms interchangeably, much like we do today, which just adds to the confusion. And in their time, it added to the confusion of what exactly it was they were studying, and what it was that the army was trying to manipulate, and what it was that America was trying to resist from Nazi propaganda. But thanks to the efforts of Hovland, this confusion would not last much longer. Remember what I said about attitudes, how they were still on the fringe of science at this time? Well, I have to admit that on this show, we've done more than a hundred episodes about the psychology of reasoning and decision-making, about bias and heuristics and fallacies and all the rest, but we've never really discussed attitudes, not scientifically, which is strange because attitudes are sort of the hydrogen atoms of social psychology. It's the foundation of pretty much everything within that academic silo, but that was not the case yet in the 1940s. But that would change thanks to the fact that the army had hired famed sociologist Samuel Stouffer to measure changes in morale. And he was a man who had spent his entire life trying to understand what attitudes were and how to measure them. And he convinced Hovland that exploring attitudes was the way to crack the code of mind change. And to that end, Stouffer presented a variety of scales he had perfected that the two could use to measure how people felt before and after watching Capra's inspirational war films, the ones that were like propaganda, but weren't propaganda, because America doesn't make propaganda. Hovland loved this idea, and together they saw this as an opportunity to create the first research of its kind into persuasion. So he and Stouffer designed a series of experiments to learn both what the army wanted to know, if Capra's films boosted morale, and what they wanted to know if those films actually change people's minds. and the test changes in knowledge, Hovland measured whether soldiers in training could answer a set of questions both before and after watching the films. History, world leaders, that sort of thing. To test changes in their opinions, he asked Stover to compare the attitudes of film watchers both to a control and to their own attitudes taken before the film and then after watching the films. And to test their motivation to fight, which is how they tested morale, Stofer studied changes in their intended behavior, how likely they were to do certain things before and after watching the film. Now, I'm simplifying things a lot here, of course. During training each week when the soldiers were already gathering in a building, tent, or cafeteria to listen to training lectures or watch films, Hovland slipped the seven 50-minute Why We Fight films into the rotation and conducted his experiments that way. And they created dozens of studies and spent hundreds of hours working on all of this And after a rigorous period of research across many different experimental designs, Stouffer spent weeks crunching numbers before he handed over the results. And after Hovland read them, he and Stouffer prepared to give Marshall and Capra and the Army and the President some bad news. The first bit of bad news was simple. When it came to morale, the films had zero effect. Nothing. They were a colossal waste of time and money. After watching Why We Fight, there was no change in soldiers' desire to be a soldier. To serve overseas, to head into battle instead of waiting for a negotiated peace. Nothing. Sure, if you already wanted these things, as Marshall and Roosevelt and the Army had, then Capra's films made you feel... Justified and noble. They were like a form of confirmation bias. But for those who felt hesitant, people who had never held a rifle in their lives, the films had no impact on those feelings. The second bit of bad news is the one that we are concerned with here in this episode. This is the finding that changed everything. The results that broke open the mysterious world of persuasion to social science all the way up to today. They found that Capra's films did a fantastic job of teaching soldiers the facts. They corrected the recruits' misconceptions and filled in the gaps in their knowledge like a well-made documentary. But when it came to their opinions, the expression of their attitudes, the answers they gave before watching the films remained nearly identical to those they gave after. In fact, most changes in opinion barely broke a percentage point of change. For instance, in the fourth film in the series, The Battle of Britain, Capra's film showed how mighty the German Air Force had been before the fight, and then he showed the British's many disadvantages. Despite this, the film showed that the Nazis had been defeated because of the grit and determination of the British people and the courage of the RAF. And they did that because the prevailing opinion in the United States at the time was that the British weren't doing their fair share of the fighting, and America was headed across the ocean just to pick up their slack. Hovland's research showed that the soldiers got that message. If they didn't know that before the film, the film did a great job of teaching it. But Hovland also found that though the facts had taken root, Capra's films did nothing to alter people's opinion that America was bailing out the British. In another example, most of the soldiers at the time believed the war would be over within a year. And to correct this, the film showed just how strong the German military had become and Hovland again found this worked. After watching, soldiers who thought the enemy was weak flipped and reported that they now saw Germany as a mighty and ominous foe. Yet, as before with the Battle of Britain, their opinions about when the war would be over did not change. They updated their beliefs based on the facts, but they still thought the war would be easily won. And you might have noticed here that this is very similar to what Brendan Nyan and Jason Reifler found with anti-vaxxers. They updated their beliefs just fine based on the facts, but they did not change their intention to vaccinate. CAPRA in the United States Army thought what everyone thinks at first. Give people the facts and they will change their minds. It's called the information deficit model, and it just doesn't work because if your goal is to change people's minds about what is and is not true, facts are great. But what Hovland realized is that if you wanted to change someone's mind, there were at least two exclusive alternatives. If you want to change people's beliefs, use facts. They work just fine. If you want to change their feelings about the world, their interpretation of it, their opinions about it, well, you need to change their attitudes. And as his work suggested, the facts might not have much impact in that regard. They were clearly separate psychological constructs, and changing one— didn't necessarily change the other. And this is the lesson that we out here in the non-academic world have yet to understand. Thanks to Hovland's work, which he continued at Yale after the war all the way to his dying day, science stopped using beliefs, opinions, feelings, values, and attitudes interchangeably. But we out here, as journalists and laypeople, we still do that. And there's a term for this in science communication I just mentioned called the information deficit model. And simply put, it's the idea that people who see the world differently, who hold different opinions, just don't have all the facts yet. Give them all the facts and they will see the world the way you see it, which is the right way. And this has led to a lot of confusion about what it takes to change someone's mind, especially among the professions that deal with facts and live in fact-based worlds. Journalists, scientists, academics, they tend to be the people who write about politics and social movements and social change, and since they believe that they are guided by facts, they are, just like Hovland and the president and Capra and the army, often completely blind to the power and structure of attitudes as a separate psychological force. It leads us to assume that when we want to change someone's mind, all we have to do is change their beliefs and correct their misconceptions. But as Hovland wrote, if your goal is to change opinions or motivate people to behave differently, letting the facts speak for themselves, well, that doesn't necessarily work. In his time, just like now, the goal of the attempt to persuade, to change someone's mind, it was not clear, and so... When the soldiers reported the same opinions after watching seven hours of fact-based training films, the conclusion was the same one we all come to when people keep their opinions and their convictions despite corrections, that facts just don't work on people. But they had, just not in the way our intuition suggests they should. And this is what has led to our current unjustified panic over the idea that we live in a post-truth world. And this is why we must clarify some things about the backfire effect. And that's exactly what we're going to do after this break. And now we return to our program. I'm David McCraney, and this is the You Are Not So Smart podcast. In late 2016, political scientists Ethan Porter and Tom Wood set out to expand the backfire effect literature because, in political science, the backfire effect had become... Gospel.
2: Well, I mean, like, I mean, the, the, the funniest thing about this is that, I mean, I started as an acolyte for Backfire. I was one of the most exciting papers I ever read. I can still just exactly remember where I was at the Chicago Library when I read this paper. You know, this first year of grad school it was amazing.
0: That's Tom Wood.
2: My name is Tom Wood. I'm a political science
4: assistant professor at The Ohio State University. Tom and I had heard about the backfire effect in graduate school,
0: right? And that is Ethan Porter.
4: Uh, Ethan Porter, I'm an assistant professor at the School of Media and Public Affairs at George Washington University.
0: Everyone in political science had heard of the backfire effect. It was, as Porter and Wood put it, a citations monster. And so they thought that the buildup to the U.S. presidential election of 2016 was a perfect opportunity to extend the research into this phenomenon out into new territory.
4: Right? So, you know, we thought it was a really neat idea and uh, sort of we wanted to sort of explore it further.
0: Their straightforward plan was to gather a large body of misstatements by politicians and present people with corrections to those misstatements. Then they would get a measure of which issues provoked which ideological groups to backfire, thus expanding the scope of the original research.
4: You know, we were going to find we were going to have a story, but you know, liberals backfire on these issues, conservatives backfire on these issues, right? In the contribution to the literature, such as it were, would be would be important, but not, uh, but but less significant, right? Um, because, you know, we'd just be sort of clarifying the sort of implications of the
0: backfire effect. To do that, they did things like show participants a statement by Hillary Clinton in which she said that gun violence in America was on the rise, and then they showed those same subjects evidence gathered by the FBI showing that gun violence in the United States was actually on a precipitous decline. Subjects also heard people like Marco Rubio claim defense spending had decreased under President Obama's administration— And then subjects saw figures from the Department of Defense that showed defense spending was higher under President Obama than it was under George W. Bush. And they expected to map out which issues cause backfire in conservatives and which cause backfire in liberals.
4: And obviously that's sort of not what happened. Um, Yeah,
0: yeah, um, that's not what happened at all. In all, Porter and Wood presented 10,100 subjects from across the United States with a slew of incorrect statements made by politicians like Ted Cruz, Barack Obama, Bernie Sanders, and Donald Trump. And those statements spanned a wide range of partisan issues like gun violence, drug crime, taxes, immigration, the gender wage gap, teenage pregnancy, abortion, fracking, drone strikes, solar power, health care, 52 issues in all. And what they found was that across all those issues and subjects, the backfire effect simply did not occur.
4: You know, we we had no idea that it would replicate, to be totally blunt. Um, The the, the straightforward idea we had was that we would sort of gather a a large universe of misstatements by politicians, um, present people with corrections to those misstatements, and then get a measure of which issues provoked which um, ideological groups to backfire, right? Um, you know, and we thought that'd be a cool paper, right? I mean, so, you know, you could tell, you know, if that had happened, you could be telling your listeners now, you know, liberals backfire about issues related to race, back, uh, conservatives backfire about issues related to taxes, right? Um, you know what I mean? Like that was sort of our expectation. We'd sort of see that. Um, and that didn't happen, right? And it didn't happen in study after study after study.
0: People resisted, yes, and some resisted outright, and they resisted differently depending on the issue and their ideology, but no one went in the other direction. No one updated to become more wrong. No one doubled down on their incorrect assumptions.
4: Um, we saw no backfire here, right? So this was interesting, right? So this is the, 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 the craziest thing about this first study was that we looked at the results. We thought we'd done something wrong right? We were like, wait a second, there's no backfire here, right? I, I mean, I still remember it, like getting, you know, looking at the results and just being like, gosh, we must have screwed something up, you know, like where where's the backfire, right? And then it's sort of, I, I, I have this vague recollection of sort of going to sleep and waking up the next morning and talking to Tom and being like, wait a second, like, you know, you know I mean, we sort of realized that like, no, no, that's the story, right? Like, we're not finding backfire, so then it sort of became a quest to find backfire. So
2: we mapped exactly the the stimulus, uh, like uh, you know, a three to four hundred word newspaper article with a, a factual correction inserted to appear as if you know they follow the same very sort of boilerplate AP style, so that you actually made the survey respondent think they were reading real pieces of uh, newspaper stimulus. Um, we, we, we estimated the same statistical model which is a linear model with a categorical interaction for the the, the, tr- the treatment indicator um, and we tried to pick the most divisive hot button issues mirroring um, the nine or approach about you know wmd in the two thousand and four election or the bush tax cuts that 's the sort of things where people should have entrenched readily easily rehearsed arguments to say, well of course a liberal would say the tax cuts don 't pay for themselves but they don't understand how supply side economics works, and et cetera, et cetera. So we, we we went all out looking for the kinds of issues that would induce backfire. And as we went through study after study not being able to induce backfire at all, we went increasingly aggressively. So we went to, we went to prime things like uh, Trump talking about race or Obama talking about race, thinking that um, uh, we're going to we're going to directly assail the respondents like white racial identity or, or non-white racial identity to, 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 like, like doing whatever it took, really, to, to, to induce backfire.
4: But we're just presenting these people with factual misstatement by a politician, correction based on neutral government data, right? So, you know, so it's, there are all kinds of examples, but the basic idea is that, you know, a politician is going to say something. Um, for instance, uh, we have an example from Hillary Clinton, right, seemingly exaggerating the... Uh, the uh, the the problem of gun violence, right? And then we point to FBI data, right, which actually shows that you know the number of gun homicides um, has declined precipitously over time, right? We
2: take out a um, a quote by uh, President, then Senator Barack Obama, saying, "Well, let me tell you what President Bush has done. He's taken out a credit card from the Bank of China in your kid's name and run up this huge debt. And I got to say, that's unpatriotic and it doesn't show sufficient like respect for America." They show them the correction That actually, you know, like there's this impression that China holds all this U.S. federal debt, but it holds like, like, like three quarters is held in the United States. And even there, China only holds about half of U.S. debt. So far from what President then-Senator Obama said, China holds a tiny fraction, about 10 to 12 percent of all outstanding U.S. debt. Uh, and then you ask people, does China hold the majority of U.S. debt? And people across the political spectrum happy to accept that, uh, that, 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 that uh, correction.
4: Um. We have, and we have, of course, Republicans, you know, saying misstatements, too. We have, um, you know, Marco Rubio talking about defense spending, you know, defense spending has fallen on President Obama's watch. And we tell people, you know, actually, according to DOD, um, defense spending under President Obama is higher than it was under George W. Bush, right? So, you know, sort of, you know, again, misstatement, and then if you're, you know, randomly assigned, you see the correction. Then we ask you, basically, do you agree or disagree? Um, with the uh, misstatement. So at this point, we've shown that backfire doesn't exist when we show people across an enormous array of issues. It doesn't exist when we, you know, control for the issue. It doesn't exist when we put the, uh, you know, the misstatement and or the correction in a newspaper article. And at that point, we were pretty confident that, you know, we couldn't really replicate backfire.
0: It was at this point that Wood and Porter decided... It was time to contact the original Backfire Effect researchers, Brendan Nyhan and Jason Reifler, and see what they had to say.
4: The funny thing about this is that I, you know, i known Brendan uh, for totally different reasons, just in the small political science world. And, you know, I just thought he was, you know, I think he's a great guy. I still do, obviously, right? I think Brendan's been super nice to me. He was super nice to me when I was a young graduate student, right? Um, so I'm just a huge fan of him personally. So I think rather sheepishly, we emailed this, uh, this paper to Brendan and Jason being like, okay, guys, hope you're well. Um, here's our paper. And, you know, Tom was an assistant prof at the time. I was, I think, finishing the PhD. Um, and, um, you know, Brendan and Jason were then, you know, total mentors, right? I mean, you know, they were willing to think through and sort of rethink this finding um, and work with us on designing a new experiment to test out the backfire effect once more.
3: I think that they might have sent it to me by email, or um, I was on a panel with them at a conference. I, I, I honestly can't uh, recall which, but I became aware of it.
0: That is Brendan Nyhan.
3: I'm Brendan Nyhan. I'm a professor of government at Dartmouth College.
0: Nyhan and Reifler were exhilarated by the fact that the backfire effect failed to replicate, and they were eager to return to the topic with Porter and Wood's investigative tools and go deeper.
3: Um, I, you know, I think this is a great example of how science works. Um, a study comes out, people do more research, and we start to build a, a body of knowledge that we can draw more firm conclusions from.
4: Um, but I, I love to think of our studies offering sort of a, a model for people who have had replication troubles like, go back, like, you know, if, if a researcher has trouble replicating another researchers work, those researchers should work together, right? They should say, okay, let's do this, right? Like, let's work together and try and replicate the original finding together, right? And this, of course, assumes good faith on everybody's part, right? But assuming good faith on everybody's part, like, this is how science progresses, right? This is how people actually can learn more, um, which is precisely what we did, right? We we worked with Brendan and Jason to devise an experiment. We tested backfire, and we didn't find any, right? And then we, you know, the paper is now public, and we put it out together.
3: Um, it would be um, a, a terrible irony if I dug in my heels in, uh, in in response to unwelcome evidence about my study of people digging in their heels in uh, in response to unwelcome evidence. Uh,
0: <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I,
3: I hope to I hope to be more self-aware than that.
0: As Wood and Porter mentioned earlier, Nihan and Reifler didn't just accept the findings of their research, they offered to help them create and run additional studies. In one of those studies, deep into the 2016 presidential campaign, the four scientists gathered more than 1,000 subjects and then measured their attitudes toward Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. They then asked people who had positive attitudes towards Trump and negative attitudes toward Clinton to read two incorrect statements recently made by Trump on the campaign trail. Then, the scientists provided corrections to those statements. In the first experiment, the team provided subjects with a quote from Trump about crime. At the Republican convention, then-candidate Trump claimed that there was a crime epidemic in America and, quote, decades of progress made in bringing down crime are now being reversed by this administration's rollback of criminal enforcement followed by a few cherry-picked statistics that made it seem as though the country was descending into anarchy. Nihan, Porter, Reifler, and Wood then showed subjects that the FBI's Bureau of Justice Statistics showed that violent crime in the United States had actually fallen dramatically and consistently over time, and according to their estimates, quote, the homicide rate in the United States in 2015 was half that recorded in 1991. Another group of subjects read a statement by Trump in which he claimed that job losses in Michigan and Ohio were staggering and out of control. They then provided those subjects with information from the Bureau of Labor Statistics that showed employment was on the rise in both Michigan and Ohio, and in fact, quote, both states each saw 70,000 new jobs over the last year. They found, in both experiments, that Trump supporters were initially more likely to believe Trump's statements than were Clinton supporters, but after reading the corrections, most of them changed their beliefs. Sure, they resisted, but no one backfired. They did not become more wrong about the facts. But that wasn't the whole story. The subject's attitudes had also been recorded before and after the corrections, and the results showed that although people had quickly and without hesitation updated their beliefs when exposed to evidence that they might be wrong, they did not update their attitudes. Not at all. And this is just like the soldiers in Hovland's and Stouffer's research into the war films made by Frank Capra for the U.S. Army. If they supported Trump before the corrections, they supported him just as much after learning he had lied the facts had almost no impact on their opinions, on their support. These new findings were similar to something that Nyhan and Reifler had seen when they tested the effectiveness of pro-vaccination messages. In that study, the corrective information was similarly effective. People who used to believe that vaccines caused autism changed their minds about that fact after learning the facts. But they still had no intention of vaccinating their children. In fact, they were even less likely to vaccinate than people who had not been corrected.
3: In our vaccine study, we did not find factual backfire. The original study shows that, in fact, people were less likely to believe the misperception that the MMR vaccine causes autism. What we did observe, however, was a, um, a kind of backfire effect, if you want to think about it that way, Uh, where people were less likely to say they would vaccinate a future child rather than more. So it's a a report of an intended behavior, uh, a behavioral intention, not a factual belief.
0: The percentage of parents who said they planned to vaccinate dropped from 70% to around 45 even though the corrections worked on them and they reported that they no longer believed that vaccines caused autism. In other words, the facts did induce a sort of backfire effect but just not in the way that we've been defining the term. It wasn't a belief-based backfire. They didn't reject the facts and keep their beliefs concerning those facts. It was an attitude-based backfire. And this distinction matters a lot. Because if you aim to change someone's mind about vaccines, you can end up playing something that I like to call belief whack-a-mole. It's attacking one justification after another, after another, and another, and winning. But as you do so, the person on the other side easily produces another justification, and another, and another, never allowing you to get close to the core belief that those supportive beliefs protect. And in the end, that person's attitude remains unchanged, or worse, that counter-arguing allows their convictions to deepen their attitudes to strengthen, and as a result, their opinions, their salient, conscious expression of how they feel about the topic, remains unchanged. And this is what happened in the Trump study. They didn't factually backfire. They accepted that they were wrong about the facts, but that did not affect their opinions.
4: His supporters are willing to sort of accept the facts at his expense, but they don't change their minds, right? And then the reaction is, oh wow, that proves that Trump supporters don't care about the facts. But then I say, if you were a Hillary Clinton supporter, and Hillary had made a misstatement about the economy or about crime, would you a acknowledge that misstatement? And if you did, would you then b change your level of support for Hillary Clinton? Right? And the answer, I think, uniformly, I've never heard somebody else say, oh no, you know, I would have then opposed Hillary Clinton because she made a misstatement. Right? I mean, that seems that seems really unlikely.
0: And so the facts suggest that. The facts do work, and you absolutely should keep correcting people's misinformation because people do update their beliefs, and that's important. But when we try to change people's minds by only changing their beliefs, you can expect to end up in engaging in belief whack-a-mole, correcting bad beliefs left and right as the person on the other side generates new ones to support, justify, and protect the deeper psychological foundations of the self.
2: Belief whack-a-mole is good. Uh, my analogy for this is that when the British Navy would send, like, a cruiser or a battleship, some very serious piece of uh, warfighting equipment to sea, it would be screened by destroyers, right? So if some German submarines that managed to happen to pass it we're, were much more willing to allow destroyers to be sunk rather than, like, you know, a battleship or a cruiser. And I think there's something similar going and, and something weekly analogous going on, but attitudinal research. And, and in this way, facts are the absolute lowest part of this hierarchy. Like, I like, 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 the, the, the facts aren't really important to me at all. Like, I literally came up with them when I know that I have to speak to a journalist or a pollster or an academic. I mean, of course, I, I reason entirely backwards. Of course, I prefer Trump; he's my guy. And then I construe a couple of consistent facts to be to be made consistent with this. But I think people, I don't know. If, they don't do this process like intentionally, but I think they're savvy enough to realize that the facts came way after the preference, and so you can discard the fact. It's not that threatening to me to be told that there weren't WMB in Iraq or actually you know, uh, undocumented immigrants commit crime at a way lower rate than the general population or the crime rate, far from it being like, the highest ever been, is actually way lower and that's not going to make me change my preference for more obdurate punishment of criminals. That's not going to make me change my preference for um, uh, Donald Trump over his opponents. So I can discard that fact because I knew I came past it cheaply. I'll come to a new fact if, if, if the circumstances require it.
3: People often um, focus on changing factual beliefs with the assumption that it will have um, consequences for the opinions people hold uh, or the policy preferences that they have. Um, But we know from lots of social science research, including uh, my collaboration with with Wood and Porter along with my co-author Jason Reifler, that um, people can change their factual beliefs and it may not have no effect on their opinions at all. Um, We've seen that in previous studies, for instance, that provided people with lots of information about controversial issues like welfare and and healthcare, Uh, just giving people factual information um, even if they do become more informed, it may not have um, an effect on their opinion. So the, I think the fundamental misconception here is that people use facts to form opinions. And in practice, that's not how uh, we tend to do it as human beings. Um, y- you know, and often we're marshalling facts to defend a particular opinion that we hold. And we may be uh, willing to discard a particular factual belief um, without actually revising the opinion that we're uh, uh, that we're using it to justify, so it's um, it's very easy, I think, to get um, to to assume a sequence of, of of reasoning from facts to opinions that really just isn't how people tend to think about politics.
2: There's a ton of conceptual slippage going on, and so I I don't want to name like any names, but some of these papers, for instance, you could see were written in a way to like label, just meant anything backfire. And so all of a sudden, failure to change attitudes consistent with the fact was, was labeled backfire.
4: So I think it's really important to distinguish between two types of backfire, right, or two types of backfire we can imagine, right? So one is the this sort of question of factual backfire, right? This is what Brendan and Jason's original paper is about. This is what Tom and I's paper, the paper I've got with Tom is about, and the paper we've got with Tom and, and, and Brendan and Jason is mostly about Um, which is about, are people willing to accept or reject facts as facts, right? Um, And this is to say, right, so according to, you know, the the backfire effect in the original paper, it said that people, when confronted with the facts, will actually say, no, that is not a fact, right? In fact, I I will believe the opposite of that factual information that you have just given me, right? And that's only, you know, sort of related to facts as facts, right? Then there's this other question, of sort of what we might call attitudinal backfire, right? Where I give you a fact, right, and that you know, in order to persuade you to say believe in climate change, but in fact, uh, it, it prompts you to believe less in climate change, right? Even though you're willing to accept that as a fact, and that's sort of a, th- th- those are sort of different sort of different processes, right? what you deem important is not going to persuade somebody else. It doesn't mean, though, that that person, you know, thinks that you're lying or stating a mistruth, right? Um, It may just be the case that they're like, okay, well, I still don't believe in climate change, right?
0: There's a very recent example of this kind of thinking, and it comes from American conservative political pundit Sean Hannity. In this clip, he says he does not believe a New York Times story that says that President Trump wanted to fire Robert Mueller. Now, tonight, for example, they're trying to change the story. At this hour, the New York Times is trying to distract you. They have a story that Trump wanted Mueller fired sometime last June. And our sources, and I've checked in with many of them, they're not confirming that tonight. And the president's attorney dismissed the story and says, no, no comment. We're not going there. And how many times has the New York Times and others gotten it wrong? Right after this segment, he learned the truth. And so he updated his beliefs. And then he said this. All right, so we have sources tonight just confirming to Ed Henry that, yeah, maybe Donald Trump wanted to fire the special counsel for conflict. Does he not have the right to raise those questions? You know, we'll deal with this tomorrow night. We have a shocking video of the day to bring you, by the way. This footage comes to us from Arizona. We would all like to think that we are purely logical actors and that our opinions are the result of looking at the facts dispassionately, thinking deeply, and that our attitudes are the result of all that rational contemplation. We would like to think that such attitudes inform our values, but that's not how our brains operate. The digestive system of opinion runs in the opposite direction. It doesn't go from facts to beliefs to attitudes to values to shared values that create regional cultural norms that then exert normative influence on what we should or should not be doing. It's exactly the other way around. It goes from regional cultural norms whose normative influence tell us what we should and should not be doing, and that informs our values, which we then protect and justify with beliefs by cherry-picking the facts. So it's not the facts don't work on people. It's that we keep trying to feed facts to people up the wrong end of their psychological digestive systems. There's another aspect to this research that we need to discuss before we head out, and all the scientists mentioned this, it's that we've gotten into a bad habit of calling just about everything that falls under the umbrella of motivated reasoning, the backfire effect.
2: Their refusal to accept your facts, that is not backfire. That's not the reason backfire is the most cited paper from political behavior in the last decade. Backfire, of course, and you know this, I'm sure your more assiduous listeners uh, will pay attention. The reason that paper made such a splash and is such a citations monster is that it showed maladaptive factual response. That is, your annoying racist uncle at Thanksgiving, when you gave him the facts that actually Barack Obama um, is no over the born overseas, and actually he has been an incredibly uh, aggressive deporter of illegal immigrants. He has not welcomed tens of thousands of Syrian immigrants at the United States, is. Decrease the number of refugees that's taken from the Middle East. It's easy for... We are totally comfortable with the idea that that those facts just bounce off um, your uncle's uh, sort of uh, ability to pass the information. He's he's sophisticated enough to realize those are not facts which comport with my side. Backfire, of course, showed I'm going to adopt those facts, integrate them, and go further the opposite direction. You tell me that there were no WMD found, I become more affirmed that WMD were found. You tell me that there's no such thing as death panels, consistent with me being a high-education Palin voter, I become more affirmed that death panels are a part of the ACA. And so like we, we need to have that sort of that, 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 that the precision of language. When it, when a political scientist talks about a backfire effect, the 9 type, they're talking about people making the wrong inference from factual interventions.
3: Um, you know, what you can think of the backfire effect as is, is the potential in extreme cases for people to actually um, resist that information so strongly that they come to move in the opposite direction. We never suggested in the original article that this happened all the time and under all circumstances. Right, So that is something that came out of secondary discussions of the paper. In fact, if you look at the paper, there are I believe, five studies, and there were two where we observed a backfire effect. Uh, So it was even within the original study itself, we were suggesting that the disconfirmation bias in response to unwelcome factual information was often present, and in some cases could lead to a backfire. Um, What uh, the Wood and Porter study adds is uh, a broader set of cases and larger samples. Uh, So they, they consider a lot of different factual misperceptions and they have more statistical power, so they have more precise estimates. They actually observe differences in acceptance of the information they provide to people um, in most of their studies. So there is evidence of people differentially accepting information um, based on whether it's congenial or not. But in general, they're finding sub-movement towards the information. The, the best way to think about it is that um, true backfire effects where people are moving Overwhelmingly in the opposite direction um, are probably very rare. Um, they're probably on um, issues where people have very strong fixed beliefs. And for lots of issues, we might observe differential acceptance, um, but it's unlikely to go all the way to backfire. Uh,
4: you know, factual actual backfire, if it, if it exists, would be especially worrisome, right? Um, and you know, I, I don't really believe that you know we're going to find it anytime soon in any sort of confident way, because, you know, again, Tom and I tried for forever to try and find it, and we never did, right? Um, and, you know, it would be a, be really interesting to see, you know, if we had, it would have been interesting, but we never did. Um, I think attitudinal backfire is less worrisome, right? Because in some ways, like, attitudinal backfire is just another description for failed persuasion attempts, right? So it's like, I try to persuade you to change your attitude, you don't change your attitude. That doesn't mean that it's impossible to change your attitude. That may very well just mean that, what I've done to change your attitude has been a failure, right? You know, it's, it's not as if everyone is immune to persuasion. It's just that persuasion is really, really hard.
3: I, I think thinking about the backfire effect as real or not real is probably the wrong way to think about it. Um, what I would encourage people to do instead is to think about resistance to unwelcome information, um, sometimes called disconfirmation bias. It's a form of what we call directionally motivated reasoning. People tend to resist information they don't want to accept that's true. And what that that means is they tend to be more skeptical of it than they would if it seemed to confirm some existing belief or attitude or identity um, that they already have. In a lot of cases, uh, directionally motivated reasoning can just mean you accept new information less than people for whom it is congenial, right? So um, you don't update your, your beliefs Uh, or your opinions as much as other people for whom that information is uh, more welcome. Right. I think this is
4: this is the other thing, too. Whenever we have a a strident political belief, um, we we have become really uh, convinced that our belief is right. Other people's beliefs are wrong and that therefore that the sort of the you know, it should be on its face. You know, this opinion should be shared with others. Right. Um, But of course, other people, too, have um, intensely committed, you know, uh, beliefs that they really care about, right. That they're really committed to. Um, and I, you know, I think that's part of what's going on is that we, you know, are narcissistic enough to think that only, only we have really, you know, I actually, this is what I talk to my students about all the time. We talk about the difficulties of persuasion, right? It's, it's so 10, only we have these really, you know, these really well thought out beliefs and we're just going to go and sort of persuade others. And they're going to, because, you know, they've never thought about these issues, right? And of course, as soon as they encounter the wise, you know, the wise people telling them what to think, they're going to change their minds. But that's not the case because other people have, you know, reasons for their beliefs too, right? Um, and oftentimes they're set in their ways as well. So if you're really set in your ways, um, um, you know, and in, in you go make a political point, then why should you think that other people are not also set in their ways, so you know, there's a you know when we talk about media effects, we talk about the third-person effect, right? Where um, are you familiar with this term? Where it's like uh, you know, it's like you know, you know, well, yeah, I'm not affected by the media, but all those other people are, right? You know, of course, you know, I'm immune from the media. It's like, well, you know, that actually sort of aggregates up to people being mostly unaffected by the media, right? Um, right. I think sort of a similar. Uh, you know, phenomenon is is observed when it comes to, you know, facts and their role in persuasion, where we all think of ourselves as having, you know, being, you know, endlessly, you know, deeply contemplated people who have very rich beliefs. Um, And of course, only those other morons who don't really, you know, know what the truth is. But of course, they have some beliefs too, and they're really committed to them. And, you know, they're not so different from us.
0: So yes, it is still true that people do resist facts that threaten their most cherished beliefs, those that are tied to identity, self, and tribe, and they can resist them so strongly that, as Wood said, the facts just bounce right off of them. And if you've experienced this, as I'm sure you have, there's good evidence for why this occurs, and we've covered a lot of that in the first three episodes of this series. But the most recent research suggests that people don't double down and become even more convinced in incorrect information after learning they are wrong. So if that's our definition of the backfire effect... The research suggests that although this can occur, it's very rare, and it requires a specific kind of person in a specific, possibly laboratory setting. In the original backfire finding that popularized the idea, it was all about weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. People who believed that they had been found were then told that they were not found, and they reported that they believed even more so that they had been found after the correction. According to Wood and Porter, that finding was likely the effect of the kinds of people we use in studies like this, the weirds, as social scientists call them, Western, educated, industrial, rich, democratic students, the sort of people typically used as subjects in psychology experiments before 2011. As Wood told me, the people who supported the war in Iraq on a liberal college campus during the Bush administration were people whose Republican identity was very strong and probably very important to them. And there's also a simpler explanation. The wording of the question in that original research is really confusing. Here's the actual question. Immediately before the U.S. invasion, Iraq had an active weapons of mass destruction program, the ability to produce these weapons, and large stockpiles of WMD. But Saddam Hussein was able to hide or destroy these weapons right before the US forces arrived. Tom Wood told me that this one question was the poison fruit of the backfire effect research. With it, they were able to find very slight backfire effects, Wood and Porter, possibly because people just check out with a question like this and fall back on their prior reasoning. And sometimes they simply reassess their thinking and then they mark themselves as more confident in the belief. Personally, I think this one question is why the backfire effect became so popular, because in an effort to simplify its wording for a mass audience, journalists, including myself, said that the researchers just asked people if they believed there had been weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. And when we wrote that people doubled down on a misconception based on that simpler version of the question, well, it made people who read that think that these people in these studies were incredibly silly. By the way, when Wood and Porter simplified that question to something more like what I just said, once again, they found no backfire effect.
4: The the appeal is is so intuitive, right? It's so easy to think, oh, the backfire effect explains so much, right? I mean, we want to believe it, you know, Uh, more than any, you know, more than, you know, unlike, uh, you know, so many things. It just just strikes us immediately as being true. Um, So I, I don't fault you at all, and I certainly... You know, I, I, you know, I'm very sympathetic to uh, uh, people who believed in the backfire effect because I was one of them.
2: I promise you, before I quit this occupation in 30, 40 years' time, I will find backfire. Like, it, it, it's my white whale at, at the moment. Um, uh, I, have, I have worn out my donors' willingness to, to fund more research. I've even worn out some colleagues' willingness to keep looking. But it's so, such an attractive idea Um, uh, I I, I will commit a huge body of work over the the coming couple of years to to try to find it. Um, uh, It's not a a property of mass attitudes. I wouldn't say it's impossible, but it's as hard a property of mass psychology to induce as any that I've worked in. Uh, It's a good news story. It's like, if you're conservative, if you're liberal... The idea that the average American is factually receptive and factually aware—that's good news. Like, this is both sides should like the fact that there is opportunity for the currency of democratic debate to be facts. And so, this is like, like wonderful news. And it's, it's sort of weird that people are so, sort of fixated on reasons to be negative about American society. Anyway, so I want that to be—I um, uh, want that to sort of be a takeaway. I also want to be a takeaway. That the folks who are involved in the philanthropy behind um, backfire, there's a lot of sort of democratic nihilism among folks who would commit resources to fact-checking enterprises, which I think is utterly misplaced. So, um, without naming your names, folks who, when 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 Ethan and I discussed this with folks who fund this research, I said, "Well, we don't do fact-checking work anymore because we just know that it induces backfire." And it's like, oh, I start to feel like, a, like I start to feel really sort of. Like, like, uh, like, as if political science has damaged America. Like, like, like. Even if we want to say that that the backfire might be capable in some places, it's definitely not strong enough evidence for us to think that we should change the way that journalists behave, or fact checkers behave, or or that fact checking is the waste of time. Instead, I, I want it to really like sort of affirm people, keep going out and trying to provide facts in your daily life, and like, and know that the facts definitely. Have some, make some difference in political debate uh, and, and argue even with the obstinate bore um, on Friday night dinner or a Thanksgiving dinner. But also, like you might be surprised, somewhere deep down, you introduce a kernel of doubt, and from that, uh, democratic
3: accountability will grow.
0: Much of this episode came from material in my new book, which should come out sometime in April, and I'll tell you more and more about that as we get closer to that date. Tom Wood is a political scientist at Ohio State University. He tweets at Thomas J. Wood. Ethan Porter is a political scientist at George Washington University, and he tweets at Ethan V. Porter, and you can also find him at EthanPorter.com. Brendan Nyhan is a political scientist at Dartmouth College. He tweets at Brendan Nyhan, that's N Y H A N, and you can find him at Brendan Nyhan.com. I'll have links to their research and everything else we talked about in this episode in the show notes for this show at You Are Not If you'd like to support what I'm doing here, please head to Patreon.com slash You Are Not So Smart. Any level of support will get you the show ad free. But the higher levels get you signed books, t shirts, and other cool stuff. For more great podcasts like this one, head to boingboingpodcast.com. The opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace. The other music in this episode mainly came from Kevin McLeod at incompetech.com and Drew Garraway. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at NotSmartBlog. You can follow me at David McCraney. And you can follow the show on Facebook at slash You Are Not So Smart. All the previous episodes are on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes and at YouAreNotSoSmart.com. So please tell everyone you know to listen to the show so we can continue to grow.